Now come and get your riddle on. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm Sam. I am. Welcome to the Lifeboats live stream. Well, I got to tell you, I started my kind of research for the show on Thursday, and I was kind of looking around, figuring out what do I want to talk about. I, I dove into a little bit of... Um, What's happening at Twitter with Musk? He started on suspending some of these accounts. I think he's doing it, you know, one at a time with some of the big accounts to generate buzz about Twitter to keep user accounts up while he's going through hell behind the scenes. You know, fire. I think they lost like another 1,200 employees with the form that they had to like affirm that they wanted to be a part of the organization. I think that was a great way to get rid of the people that really didn't want to be there and were going to be boat anchors rather than speedboats, which is kind of what he's driving towards. At the same time, there's tens of thousands of people like me who have been banned for saying things that were truthful in the face of lies that cost people their lives and, uh, you know, that cause death and disability. And those accounts are like, they're not going to be big enough to get it noticed by Elon Musk, the great, but if you're Donald Trump or the Babylon Bee or, you know, uh, Project Veritas or one of the others, then that's fine. You get a special pass, just like what's happening with Getter and Truth. If you're touting the Trump message, you bet your ass you can get verified no matter what size you are. But if you're me, well, you need to keep using our platform a little bit. And uh, yeah, you got to sing the Trump praises to be verified on those accounts and we still have this going on with twitter it is so sad to see he's talking about coming in and saving free speech well i'm not seeing it i'm just not seeing it what i'm seeing is a real shit show uh that's really disappointing you know hopefully this kind of sorts itself out and he comes up with some good policies but so far they've been absolute shit elon so anyway i was looking at that <laughs> where is it and that's all I have to say about that. So somewhere in there, I came across, um, I went to the Ethical Skeptics blog right here and found that he had released uh, part two of three of his Houston, We Have a Problem. And this one's titled Houston, the CDC has a problem. And I thought, oh, perfect. This is the one I want. I'll dive into this uh, tomorrow, which was Saturday. And uh, well, I've I did actually do that. And you can see here, I started highlighting a little bit and I'm reading through this and highlighting. I got to about there and the article keeps going and 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 finally ends up down here. Whereas the part I highlighted 
that was like right up here. <laughs> so I realized there's no way in hell that I'm going to get through all of this. And it's because, you know, in here he's got references to this blog post that he's written and to this writing and to this one and to this one and to this one and to this one. And these are all like foundational concepts that his uh, inference and his conclusions and his philosophy, because that's really who the ethical skeptic is. He's a philosopher. And I mean, I got to tell you, I have a pretty decent vocabulary. Um, and just in this little 10% that I got through, I had to go and look up 10 words. And there was so much of this philosophy that like I had, didn't really understand or had never delved into. And it sort of put me on the path to do that. And, and by the time Sunday comes around, it's time for a show. I'm like, there was no way that I can do this. And uh, what I decided to do is actually come back to this story. But I think we want to start, I want to start with heteroduction. And of course, um, we're, we're going to take it through nicely and tie it in uh, with interdimensional space aliens and their their uh, spacecraft. It's going to be great. He's probably going to disown me after this. He did follow me after the last video, but I think this one's going to sever those ties. We'll see. Okay, but yeah, he is just so precise in his language and uses very specific words that you need to understand to really capture the nuance of what he's saying. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around this, but I think uh, I think I'll be able to sort of explain it to you guys to where you'll be able to grasp the concepts that he's talking about and why he's sort of coming to some of the conclusions that he is. And he's saying heteroduction when classic inference proves unsound. That's how they sort of reason in mainstream science. And it says there exists a circumstance for skepticism wherein nagging repetitive antidote inside the general public experience just will not go away. Sometimes inference can be drawn from what is denied, contradictory, or unknown, and not simply from what is consistent with what we know. Heteroduction is a disruptive and asymmetric form of inference which resides at the heart of the Clun-Planck theory of scientific revolution. So that was one of the first things I had to look up, like, what the hell is that right there? And so, oh, no, not the one. It is this right here. And it's this cycle that sort of scientific development goes through. And for those of you listening, there's a like a circular process flow that starts up on the kind of the top right with pre-science. That's sort of the phase where they go through and form this theory like relativity is one of the ones that we're going to walk through and show you how this is happening with the theory of relativity and the big bang theory. Um, and that sort of becomes what's referred to as normal science. And then over time, different scientists start sort of exploring the fringes of the theory and either confirming it or finding contradictory findings. And um, that's where you get to this model drift. And at some point it reaches a crisis where they both can't be true. You've got this contradictory evidence out there in the world that people are noticing and that can't be denied. 
And it ties back with established science, but at the same time, it undermines the existing paradigm in some way, okay? And then you go through this process of the model um, revolution, or really it should be called evolution because that's what they're doing is evolving their thinking to something more encompassing that's more accurate. And then you go through this paradigm change. And unfortunately, under the system that we have today, and this is one of the things the ethical skeptic is pointing out, that's going to happen when these people basically die off because they are using this psychological or employing the psychological method that's preventing this right here, this process from taking hold and from the truth coming out. And we're seeing that, you know, this whole, this thing right here, uh, this repetitive antidote inside the general public experience that just will not go away. Well, that really reminded me so there's 93 doctors who have this. died suddenly or unexpectedly since the rollout of the COVID vaccines. We know that doctors have to be fully vaccinated to be working in Canada. And most doctors by now have had four COVID shots. Um, some have even had five. So uh, the fact that you know so many of them are dying suddenly and unexpectedly um, at some of them at very, very young ages is, is, is really alarming. It is alarming, and you're starting to be noticed now internationally, and I know that people are taking note, and in fact, uh, this is Laura Lynn. featured in a Toronto Star, uh, you know, uh, piece. article that they just did. Yeah, so I've, I've had my first hit piece done on me in the Toronto Star a few days ago, and, you know, they, they've said that, uh, you know, this uh, debunked conspiracy theory about uh, doctors dying um, potentially due to the COVID vaccine, why won't the story go away? And I have a very simple answer to that. It won't go away because it's real. It's happening. These are real people. Uh, they're dying. They're, you know, suddenly they have no previous health conditions. Uh, they're actively practicing doctors and they're dying in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. This is not a story that's going to go away. This has only snowballed uh, since it started. Exactly. And that's a perfect example of uh, the heteroduction that's sort of uh, keeping us from getting to the truth. Okay. And he's got... Um, these different modes of inference, the way you sort of deduce, come to a conclusion, essentially. Much of the chagrin of the fake uh, skeptics. Let me change this font a little bit. Bear with me here. There we go. That's a little better. Much to the chagrin of the fake skeptics, certain phenomena and archetypes in the realm of human experience will just not go away. Specific subjects they disdain are irregular irritatingly bolstered by almost daily repeated observation on the part of the general public. So we're seeing it and this COVID is such a perfect example of, you know, this philosophy being uh, the, the, this strategy being used. Okay. Inside many of these topics, uh, the, the idea that such disdained phenomena constitute a mere figment of overzealous imaginations has been falsified over and over. Like we went through that with, uh, I think it was debunked a funk and he was talking about, Oh, that, you know, he, his immediate response to that is to show a doctor in his twenties or something that died a few years ago. 
and uh, that was before the shot, so therefore it couldn't be the shots. It's like, well, wait a minute. There were five in one week, so can you find me an example of that where five healthy doctors in one week have dropped dead? Or, uh, you know, it, it, it's not even a statistically relevant comparison to make. You know, you're talking multiple orders of magnitude higher than normal, above the baseline, above the threshold. So we're seeing it. They're attempting to debunk it by saying, well, no, he was sick before. Well, yeah, he got sick and developed cancer or went out of remission shortly after the shot started for these guys. So you're saying that there's nothing to it, but we've got, we're at a nine sigma uh, rise for, for cancer, for oncology right now. You're going to tell me there's nothing going on here. I mean, we've got the data and they are, they can't address it, right? They can't sit down and debate it. They won't talk about it. They have to ignore it and try and do their best to discredit it rather than address it. Okay. So these are some of the links that they will go to. And you've got here, I just want to go through this before we go uh, at the top. He's got stronger versus weaker um, modes of inference here ranked by strength. Falsification where you're seeing one piece of data that's false. Deduction, you eliminate the others until you find the one that's left and then you decide, okay, this must be what's happening. Concilient induction this is sort of i think of this as like dot connecting the concilient there's another one of the words that i had to look up it's a way of sort of finding a relation between two things and this is where uh heteroduction comes into play it sort of finds a lot of those dots and things that anchor back with existing scientific discovery things that we've known so it's not like a theory comes in and upsets the entire, you know, throws all science on its head and everything must be realigned according to this new theory. What you do, as we're going to go through in this story, what he's pointing out is you have to have a lot of concilient points, you know, dot connection going on to existing science to show how it fits into that model. It fits into this model. It's this little bit over here that's wrong. Okay, and so that's what heteroduction is kind of doing here in this picture. You're looking at the different components, the different connections. Triangulating induction is where you'd like evaluate someone's personality based on previous interactions with them or behavior and so forth. Linear induction, you're kind of looking over time for pieces that fit the narrative. Uh, Abduction, you're, I think, taking things away. Panduction, you can see they've got some data and they're trying to make it fit to the birds, but it's, uh, it doesn't exactly look like the birds, right? And you've got divine revelation where there's one bird drinking a beer, critical thinking, two birds drinking two beers. (laughs) So are drinking each drinking a beer. Uh, so he's not a big fan of the critical thinkers in the establishment, I think. Um, okay. So, Let's keep going here. They extrapolate a condition of difficulty in terms of classic inference to therefore stand as a basis for inferring the phenomenon's absence as well. This is an appeal to ignorance. Okay, so they claim, oh, that can't be possible. That's ridiculous. Whatever they can to say, therefore, it's not happening. These doctors' deaths are perfectly normal for, as you know, one example of 
what's being referred to here. Then they invoke the na- in the name of science as a USDA stamp of certification on such putrid products of critical thinking to the ethical skeptic, such skeptical casualty is folly. And uh, casualty is like, um, it's another word I had to look up. It's misleading, sort of giving a incorrect answer, like leading one to the wrong conclusion. Okay, the truth is the casualty is the way you can remember uh, casualty, I believe it is. My thoughts regarding this condition, what I have teamed the contrathetic impasse revolve are around a new approach to research and inference. So this contrathetic impasse is kind of where we are now with the COVID narrative. All the vaccines are 100% safe and effective. You can even give them to pregnant women. We know this because we've studied it. No, you can't see the data. We'll hand it over in on a 75-year schedule. That's perfectly normal. <laughs> and, you know, in the meanwhile, the normies are seeing the lies day after day after day. It will not go away. These dead doctors keep piling up in Canada because they've all been vaccinated right so it's becoming more and more undeniable and eventually it's going to reach this crisis point that is what was being referenced back here the con cycle where we're kind of getting into this model crisis down here with the whole uh vaccine transfection therapy they want you to believe is a vaccine going on now okay switch back here all right so he goes on one which we employed inside intelligence during my days therein so he's a former uh military intelligence guy i believe it was and you know he was saying this is the kind of strategy we use to evaluate what was happening and get to the truth this is the form of research which might be performed by an investigator this ilk of researcher does not hold an entire body of pre-knowledge of prior art and must assemble such as part of their discovery process inside their research method. And if you think about it, this is kind of what I was coming in and doing. I don't have all of this, uh, you know, traditional science, accepted science kind of thing, the, the narrative paradigm drilled into me as a lot of people do. And so I can come in, I was making observations. If you remember, I was looking at you know, the the swimmer who was doing a GoFundMe because he just didn't, he couldn't swim. He, he would be out of breath and short of breath. They were chronically fatigued and he was trying to find a way to support himself. You had the female bodybuilder, the cop, all very athletic people did a lot of cardio and they were all either killed or, uh, you know, dropping dead or unable to function in their life. And it was like, hey, something's going on here. These people that do a lot of cardio they're being, it looks like disproportionately affected by this thing. And then I went and started looking at, well, what could be happening with the spike protein? And we've realized, oh, look, uh, the spike gets produced in the body. It doesn't just go away. It's, it's there for months and months. We're finding, we don't know how long the MRNA lasts, but it's longer than what they said. It gets into more places than they claimed. It goes everywhere. It starts pumping out spike proteins. It's causing problems. We think it's leading to amyloidosis and fibril tangles growing in the blood veins and eventually causing people heart attacks 
and their body just can't feed itself enough oxygen to keep going. And they're found dead in their beds the next morning. And then it swept through all the soccer players and swept through, you know, the football players in the NFL. They're reportedly taking ivermectin to kind of cover this up, but it's there. Okay. And it was there to see, you just had to look at it by taking, I think that's what these appear in this diagram, what these different colors are representing sort of the rose colored glasses, the tent on the rose colored glasses that you view the world through. You have to sort of take those off. I talk about it in terms of when new information comes in that sort of contradicts something that I previously thought was correct. You kind of throw all that out and see what pieces fit back together and, and remain standing afterwards. And I think that's kind of what's being described here. Okay. So, um, he goes on to say, not that this mode of inference or means of research has not existed all along. It has, I kind of came to it without even knowing what it really was. Uh, rather, my point is that this form of research is denied its own meaning and identi- identity inside acceptable science method. Like the people who go about this route, they are discredited because of the way that they come to their conclusions. Okay. Uh, a necessity for heteroduction, this form of research and mode of inference, this style of researcher employs involves a circumstance conundrum exhibiting the following cohesive set of characteristics, one common to all subjects, which labor under this burden. Okay. So this is kind of, uh, what they face when they go in locus, uh, locus of study resides inside an enigma or an apparent enigma, which bears detection but is denied meaning. So there's a signal. Remember, like, uh, you know, kids dying of myocarditis, but it's getting ignored. It's denied meaning. Oh, it's noise. It's normal. Everything's fine. Number two, its logical critical path bears asymmetry or is unduly influenced by agency. Well, the CDC says, right? It's three, its observations are ephemeral, hard to quantify, and involve apparent sublime factors, which is like royalty. Thou, thou shall not question the CDC study data that we refuse to share with you. But here are the conclusions that we've come to. Meanwhile, what was I seeing when I compared the CDC's claims to the rest of the world? There was always a 10, 20, 30% delta between what the CDC was reporting and what everybody else was seeing. And it was always in favor of the gene transfection therapies. Okay. And so like, how is that chance if it was always in the favor of the pharmaceutical cartels that are basically their masters? The answer is it's not chance. Uh, Number four, observations are cherry sorted by skeptics in favor of reliability over their probative potential. Another word I had to look up. Probative means uh, likely to be proven true, okay, to be proven as fact. Uh, observations are cherry sorted by skeptics in favor of reliability over their probative potential. So they want to see the consistent results and they are sort of dividing up, redefining things, right? What do we see with uh, the shots and the 14-day the window? 
well, the shots don't work until 14 days. So if you get this shot and then something happens to you, you know, in that 14 day window where 60 to 80% of all the adverse reactions occur, well, we're going to count you as somebody who didn't take the shot, even though you did, which is going to make it look like the people who don't take the shot are getting injured far more than the people who do. When in fact, the opposite is true and it's actually creating a negative efficacy. The worst it is, the worst, the worse it is for people, the more harm the, the treatment actually causes, the better it ends up looking as being effective under that system that they employed. And they knew what they were doing. This was not like, oh, well, we didn't. We were just following the science. No. Number five, there exists an appeal to authority hostility towards the subject domain. This is the embargo hypothesis. Thou shall not talk, say the word ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or thou shall be banned. We'll go after you with the state board. We'll take away your licensing. We'll take away your hospital privileges like they did for Dr. Mary Talley Bowden at Houston Methodist will deny you transplants if you don't go and take this gene transfection therapy because the CDC says, and they're the experts here. Number six, the disciplines of lab linear style hypothesis, deduction, and induction have not proved to constitute constitute sufficient inference methodologies to make progress inside the enigma. Are they explaining the data anomalies? No. Okay. Then let's look at something else, but that's where they go and attack something else that might be working, you know, like what the frontline doctors and others were doing. Uh, number seven, more is unknown than is known regarding the entailed subject domain. Like, uh, you know, it's perfectly safe for, for women. For pregnant women to take it's good for you the mom and it's good for the baby how do we know we tested it on some rats 41 french rats that we killed as soon as they showed the the positive progress that we wanted before there was time for more problems to develop just like they vaccinated the control group in the study to kill off the control group he goes on, the ethical skeptic goes on, solving a murder is deduction or discovering a non-chlorine hand sanitizer for Ebola-stricken areas is linear induction, seeing things that sort of work and devising a way to come up with something that does work. Or arriving at a conclusion about the character of a person, that's the triangular induction. None of these constitute a sufficient method of inference under the condition outlined above. Sometimes inference can be drawn from what is denied, contradictory, or unknown, and not simply from what is consistent with what we know, right? So what they're saying is most not true is kind of, <laughs> we can infer, oh, yeah, maybe there is something to this, right? Heteroduction in red is not so much, and he's referring to the graph above that we went through, is not so much strong in its relative ranking as a form of inference as it is a key, as it is key in its role as possibly the only avenue of recourse inside once science and society have reached a contrathetic impasse. And that's where we are with this whole COVID thing. And if you think that he wrote this for... Uh, COVID-19, like, you know, these points, all of them are exactly what's happening. This was published in January of 2019 before it started. And it is literally exactly what's happening. 
Observations have been proven to exist, but classic means of research have failed to produce critical answers. In steps, heteroduction, okay? This is a disruptive and asymmetric form of inference necessary when classical modes of inference have served to produce or enforce incoherent and or falsified conclusions. This method of inference must pool and draw inference from that which is unlike our prior art. So it's outside of the paradigm, okay? This is the basis of the uh, Kahn-Planck paradigm shift understanding of scientific revolutions. And that's referring to this graph, this process where you get this model, it's established, people start working within that model and developing other theories that tie in and use that model as a foundation for their model or for some aspect of their model. And it gets more and more complex until some problems, some, some data starts being collected that contradicts the model, the paradigm. And eventually it reaches that crisis. Okay. And so, Heteroduction is strong because it leverages inconsistent observation as a form of coincident falsification and deduction. Falsifications and deductions of high probative value, provable value, which are erroneously or surreptitiously dismissed because of their perceived lack of consistency, conformance, or salience. Well, the, the you know that's not happening to enough people. It's not a big deal. That's not a safety signal. Uh, well, it's not happening with all these people. It's only this small group or that's not really relevant. You're misinterpreting that. Those are, you know, ways that this whole COVID, uh, narrative that, that these shots are actually deadly has been dismissed and written off by people and the vaccine injured and so forth. One must establish a concilient shitload and confirmation of standing wisdom in order to counter one violation for it. So what does that mean right there? That concilient, that's sort of the dot connecting, if you remember. So he's saying you have to go and build bridges to all of these other um, established pieces of science to show how the two work together in order to knock down one piece, one violation of it, one uh, brick in the wall that gets knocked out by your theory, right? And he's saying, because a single instance of violation of the paradigm of our wisdom is vastly more scientifically informative than is any instance, particular instance of its confirmation. Telling us what we already know is not as valuable as telling us there's something we don't know. There's something we haven't figured out. There's something that we don't understand correctly. And we need to dive into this more and figure out what the problem is here. And the problem and what this is what ethical skeptic is really pointing out with this whole article is that there is that when, when uh, I guess mainstream or uh, government funded science goes looking for the problem, they go looking with those rose colored glasses on, they go looking within the constraints of the existing paradigm. And what the ethical skeptic here is pointing out is that you have to, be willing to step outside of that paradigm, evaluate the data, look for concilience, these connections back to existing accepted science, right? And show how 
not only does it work there, but it also works over here where the existing paradigm, the existing model uh, relativity, for example, doesn't explain what we're seeing. But my new model does. And by the way, it fits with all this other stuff that we've confirmed. That's what he's saying right there. Very, you know, very, very so precise in his language. And this is one of the things that really sort of caught my attention in the early days. I knew this guy knows what he's talking about just because of the precision in his communications and messaging and and ideas that he was expressing. Uh, So here's a, this is the guy who came up, Mike McCullough, who came up with this QI theory. And this is where, see, this is all ethical skeptics fault. You can't talk about QI and the big bang being a bunch of bullshit without going to interdimensional space aliens. So, you know, I have to do it. Uh, but this is, he came up with a QI theory and he's here tweeting. It's often possible to extrapolate the truth solely from what is banned. And ethical skeptic goes on. There are certain subjects wherein their modus absence, absence of an object or state. So there's these two modus words. And it essentially, if I had to boil it down, I had to go read a paper to understand this. But there's this sort of notion that if A happens, then B always happens. So therefore, if you have A, then you have B. And the absence, the negative of that is you look at B and say, if there's no B, then there's no A, right? So you have if A, then B, if no B, then no A is, is kind of what that's explaining there. So their, their modus absence <coughs> has been falsified. In other words, Occam's razor plurality has been surpassed and the ethical research now demands their investigation. We're way past the simple, you know, uh, explanation, something else is going on here and we need to look at it closer. These are the domains which are best researched by the intelligence specialist that form of that form of investigator who knows how to assemble prior art and chase a consilience of information, all of which have proved to be unlike much of what we have seen before, right? Look at the evidence regardless of the, without the rose colored glasses and try and figure out what the patterns are, what's going on. But such a researcher must understand that what is forbidden and the puzzle piece nubs, which are cut off in order to make the pieces a better fit inside the priori puzzle, which is another word I had to look up. (laughs) It's like a a false picture, a false paradigm is a a way to think of it. Uh, It can also often be assembled into the truth. So like, they're sort of cutting corners and forcing things to fit together that don't necessarily fit together. And I talk about, you know, take the puzzle apart and then put everything back together that does fit. That's this process, really. Such is a predictable fobble of mankind, which is like a shortness or a weakness, shortcoming. So an example of heteroduction, he's going with the horizon drive. This is a fuelless spacecraft drive. It's essentially a big metal shield that catches photons and pulls you through space because of UNRWA radiation, which we're going to go into. But this comes in, this brings into to question 
dark matter, which is something we've heard about. They, they came up with it not too long ago. And it's a result of cataloging a set of anomalous observations regarding universal galactic motions, like of galaxies and so forth, in their relation to our understanding of gravity. So we have relativity that Einstein gave us. It's his theory that that's what's cre- that it's mass that's creating gravity and that's how it works. And classic linear induction would dictate that we craft dark matter as the incremental element which would function to conserve general relativity and lambda CDM models. That's the Big Bang Theory. As the which, by the way, both of these, in my opinion, absolute bullshit. Uh, there was no Big Bang. It, it's it's an ongoing process that has no beginning and no end. And general relativity is wrong. And it's 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 exactly what he's talking about. It's the rose-colored glasses, the paradigm that all of these scientists are stuck in, and they're unwilling to let go of some of the components of that, some of their assumptions about relativity in order to evaluate the evidence. And QI comes in and seems to, you know, it's still kind of theoretical, but seems to be explaining what's happening better than relativity does, okay? So, uh Lambda CDM models as the null hypothesis in the face of such a growing set of conflicting observations, right? So their model doesn't explain it. And what do they do? Well, there's this fictional thing that we haven't seen that we can't measure that has to be there because uh, our model says that it wouldn't work otherwise. So therefore, this thing must exist and we just have to find it. The reader may be forgiven for confusing such activity with belief. Now, you'll notice I've rarely, rarely used the word belief because that's something you believe. You hang on to it regardless of the evidence, right? Whereas I tend to use the word think when I talk because I look at the evidence, I think about it, and then I come up with my opinion, with, with my thoughts on it. But it's rarely a belief, Okay. Words are important. An ethical skeptic understands that the null hypothesis should never enjoy the luxury of becoming a belief. Dark matter is a null hypothesis that's become a belief. Heteroduction and contrast would coalesce all of these same anomalous observations into a competing paradigm. Observations which are either unlike anything we have ever seen or seen or even contradict our current prior art on the subject. Quantized inertia, QI, stands as a key example of heteroduction in action, okay? So that's what we're going to, this is how we get to space aliens here in just a little bit. So first though, with the linear induction model, which is kind of what they're doing now, they've come up within their paradigm, well, this must be there, so let's look for it and find it. Dark matter, a hip hypothetical form of matter that is thought to account for approximately 85% of the matter in the universe, but they can't find any a quarter of its energy density. Its presence, its presence is inductively implied in a variety of astrophysical observations, including gravitational effects that cannot be explained unless more matter is present than can be seen. So therefore it's, it's dark invisible matter. (laughs) A person conducting heteroduction would sound warning on this line of reasoning. Uh, You're making shit up, Fred. What's going on over there? 
if enforced as a truth rather than a as the null hypothesis like wait you're no the the real answer here is you don't have an answer you can't address your model fails to address this fails to explain it fails to account for what we're observing here whereas with heteroduction quantized inertia has come in it was first proposed in 2007 by physicist mike mccullough i think that was his tweet above talking about the truth what's officially denied you can learn from it's alternative to general relativity and to lambda cdm the big bang theory quantized inertia is poised to explain various anomalous effects such as the pioneer flyby anomalies observations of galaxy rotations which forced dark matter's introduction and propellantless propulsion experiments such as the em drive and the wood uh woodward effect it is a theory of inertia like resistance arising from quantum effects which serve to function at, in the place of dark matter okay so hold on here let me see what i was yes now i want to play you <laughs> this is where ethical skeptics going to be like what the fuck you're playing bashar in the middle of one of my blog posts but yes that's exactly exactly what we're going to do at least some of your scientists are beginning to understand that while they used to think that the classical physics level and the quantum physics level were not really reconcilable, they're beginning to understand in a variety of ways that there are actually quantum effects in your macroscopic classical physics situations, especially in what you call your biology. Your brain is a quantum computer. They're beginning to understand that. Many of the enzymes in your body actually function using quantum principles, which they never thought possible before. The trees around you use quantum principles to turn sunlight into energy. You're beginning to understand this, and you will begin to know how they do it, and you can adapt that technology for yourselves. Think about that for just a minute. The plants use quantum processes to turn sunlight into energy meaning you know we could have potentially clothing we wear that somehow feeds us energy to where we don't even have to eat do you know how many problems how how dramatically something like that would change uh life on this planet for for our species if you could put on a watch or a device or something that feeds you and you don't even have to eat. And by the way, it's, uh, you know, you're, it's also using all of these frequencies to eliminate disease and, and discomfort from your body and inflammation and everything else by, uh, you know, some sort of frequency therapy as we're going to, he's going to go into more here later on as we go. So, you not only don't have to eat, but you feel great all the time. Maybe this is how they live to 700 years old or how humans end up living to 700 years old down the road because your body's constantly in a state of uh, optimal function because you're enable your humanity will have learned to manipulate, to understand what's happening at a quantum level and then use it to its benefit in a number of different ways. I mean, this is going to apply across the board, okay? 
So <clears throat> ethical skeptic goes on here and he talks about this, uh, this video here, French theory, which could disprove dark matter is the title of it. And <clears throat> it's on YouTube. Excuse me once. There we go. It's on YouTube. I've taken a few clips from it and we're going to, we're going to watch that. So let's watch it. Shall we? Our current understanding of inertia began with Sir Isaac Newton with his first law of motion in which he stated. So this is Joe Scott. He's got like a million five followers on YouTube, a uh, really big account. This is the video that these people are referencing to sort of explain the basics of QI. And I've taken it and cut it down to six minutes from like 17. He's trying to be funny and these scientists they're never really that funny. If you go back and watch the original video to capture all of this, you'll under understand what I mean. But uh, I want to just give you the, the crux of it here with a few clips. So an object at rest stays at rest and an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and direction unless acted on by an outside force. And the problem with observing inertia here on Earth is that it's constantly being bombarded by some kind of outside force. Gravity, friction, air pressure, all of these things, they completely alter the true nature of inertia. Like imagine tossing a baseball up in the air and it just keeps going up and up and up forever. That would be crazy. But if you were in space outside the gravity well of a star or a planet, that's exactly what would happen. That is the true nature of inertia throughout the vast majority of the universe. So today we're going to take a look at inertia and a controversial theory that might completely alter our entire understanding of the universe. Not just alter our entire understanding of the universe, but our, um, the way we, our entire society, societal structures. I mean, it, it is a, it is incredibly, incredibly profound the transformation that we're about to go through here. And I want you to, I want to go back to Bashar here and I want you to hear some more of what he's got to say about this process. This is a question about what can we expect over the next 20 to 30 years? About the next couple of decades, uh, can you talk about where it's going here on earth and with humans as a whole? Yes, well, many of you already know some of the paths that your science and technology is taking such as going into a deeper understanding of what you have labeled the quantum level, yes? Right, yeah. And understanding that you will apply this in a variety of ways, quantum computers, quantum devices, and so on and so forth. Now, quantum devices, what are those? Well, I mean, you can uh, entangle particles, separate them, or entangle a few billion particles, separate them, put them into a device and then, or put them into separate devices, maybe into a little canister that sits on your little communication device. And when you go and tap another device, y'all exchange qubits, right? Or 10 or, uh, you know, a million qubits or whatever. And then you can maybe rotate those in one device and it rotates them in the other device because they're quantum, they're entangled. And you've got a way to communicate privately where nobody knows what you're saying back and forth. There is no NSA. There is no AT&T. We don't need the cell phone networks. We don't need them spying on us anymore. We've got peer-to-peer -peer private communication 
that works at a quantum level without the infrastructure. That's how they communicate. And, you know, we've got, <laughs> there's a funny clip of him where a lady says, oh, I'm from SETI and, uh, you know, uh, we're looking for you guys. And of course, what are they looking for? They're looking at the radio spectrum as if all the ET civilizations out there way more advanced than us are going to be using the same technology that we chose to use versus something far more advanced. Okay. And it's funny. He responds to her. He's like, well, I'm right here. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Cause they're supposedly looking for aliens and like, here he is. And this is one of the things that kind of dawned on me as I'm watching some of these Bashar videos yesterday and, and a lot of them today is that, you know, he's been doing this 36 years. There was uh, Seth Speaks, that book that I've talked about many times that talks about the history of Earth. And there was a section in there, this was written in the 70s, and there's a section in there that's really describing sort of components of modern-day string theory. And I'm like, wait a minute, when was that? And it really was, it sort of laid out what was happening. And Bashar, he, um, what did he predict? I think it was 9-11 that he like really nailed that there would be an attack. It would be by the end of uh, 2001 on New York and like, you know, said that months before it happened or maybe a couple of years before it happened. So there are, uh, you know, like things that they've done to sort of validate themselves. But again, just like with the ethical skeptic, I've never heard this guy miss a beat or lose his uh, train of thought or you know he always seems to come in with like the perfect response the somebody will come up with a question uh, and it's really like they're holding themselves back but they don't see that because they're pretending not to know that they're the cause of what's getting in their way and he brings out this sort of perfect interaction and sometimes brings in other people to come through uh, to bring about and sort of put this front and center for the person to reflect back to them to see what's getting in their way. Um, and it's really, it's just fascinating to watch that just flawlessly happen time and time again. And it shows you that this is some entity operating at a very high frequency is I guess the best way to describe it um, okay let's keep going here take advantage of the multiple parallel realities that exist all around you by tapping into them from the quantum level but then translating them into what you call the macroscopic level of your technology that will become more and more prevalent so what is he talking about there using quantum computers to be able to sort of tap into what we're gonna find out as we go through this is higher consciousness. It's a higher version of yourself that you're actually going to be communicating with because of the type of device that it is, is, is the way Bashar explains it. It's very, very fascinating to sort of wrap your head around uh, the mechanics of what he's saying, how he's describing the universe functioning or exists, what uh, I guess the uh, the reflection of reality the this every 
Everything exists out there. There are all of these cards, like he talks about a billion times a second. You're going from one frame where nothing's happening to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's how we experience time. And that time exists within existence, not outside of it. There wasn't time until there was existence. Okay. And so he really kind of what you're doing is choosing of all of these infinite possibilities around you, the path that you navigate through these frames of reality of time as we perceive it. But of course, in his dimension, everything's happening all at once. Okay. There is no time. It's all in the now as Eckhart Tolle puts it really, really fascinating stuff to, to think about. Okay. You will eventually finally allow yourselves to actually have what you would call free energy devices, which you have had from time to time. But of course the society you have created has suppressed them, but you will finally stop doing that eventually. And what is he describing there? Area 51, S4, the men in black, the whole government, U.S. uh, deep state that has come in and built up around this whole extraterrestrial, um, I don't want to say issue, but uh, interactions and sort of monopolized them and taken that technology back to exploit it and to keep it for themselves and for their benefit. And, you know, part of what we're seeing with this whole QI theory that's out there and being attacked and, and berated just in, in the exact same manner as is happening with COVID-19 and the people that spoke out against these gene transfection uh, therapies. It's exactly the same playbook that's being employed for both of these. Right. And it's because as this quantum stuff comes out, look, if I, if I have the same ability to turn sunlight into energy as plants can, and I can feed myself, I can feed my family with a little device or, you know, something simple that uses these quantum principles and is super efficient. Do I need a job? If, you know, he talks about his space, his spacecraft They don't build it, they actually grow it. And I think the way that they're doing it is putting it in some kind of frequency bath that's interdimensionally bringing the components in in the right places at the right times by changing their resonant frequency so that it attracts the one atom thick layer of aluminum and then the one atom thick layer of nickel And then the one atom thick layer of uh, whatever the other ones are. Um, And that's how he talks about we grow our ships. And I think that's kind of the process that they're doing. And look, if I've got a ship and I can zip around to Tokyo without having to buy a plane ticket and have a passport, because I don't need an airport, right? I can just land anywhere. What good are all these government borders and controls and things? 
And he's going to also talk about how his ships move. Now, there's two kind of methods. And one is, it's simply, okay, there's this paradigm shift that we have to go through. We think that location exists outside of an object. Like, you know, this cup is in this location right here. Uh, and that is a property of where the cup is. It exists outside of the cup and it's in a different location here. But the reality is what he's pointing out is this cup has a resonant frequency here that's different from the one over here. And if you can take the resonant frequency from over here and apply it while it's here, it will go from here to here. And he says, that's the way they travel between stars. When they need to go across the universe, they take the signature of that, of the place they want to go and they apply it to their craft and blink, they're there. And then they use the electrogravitic propulsion and it's slower still, you know, light years ahead of what we've got with our internal combustion and jet engines and so forth. But still, um, and we'll go more into that as we go through this, but it, you know, we're still, we're in this, you watch Star Trek or any of the shows brace for warp 10 and all this kind of nonsense stuff where the reality is bam. Now we're on the other side of the galaxy. That's how they do it. And what he points out is that location is a property of the object. This cup has a frequency that changes with its location because location is a property of the object. So if you can override, hack that location, think of it like your cell phone. You can get uh, programs that will override the GPS signal. So instead of looking like where you are, you want to look like you're somewhere else in the world. That's the equivalent. The cup is in Texas now and... I change the location frequency of this and poof, now it's in Tokyo, Japan. That's what he's talking about. That's how he's explaining quantum, the quantum realm, how it actually operates and how they use it to travel great distances, the the vast emptiness of space. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Okay. So let's go back to <laughs> uh, to Joe Scott here with where he's explaining this QI theory, okay? Empty space is not really empty. It's actually filled with quantum fields that correspond to the different particles in the standard model. And in these fields is a constant frothing up of virtual particles. Virtual particles are antiparticle particle pairs that pop up out of nowhere and these virtual particles antiparticle particle pairs are popping up and recombining just like everywhere else in the universe. But because of that horizon line and the black hole's voracious appetite and 
He's talking about a black hole example. I kind of edited this down. but Variably, one of these particle pairs, or one part of the particle pair, gets sucked into the black hole, and the other one flies away. Now, in normal conditions, this flyaway particle would just recombine with its corresponding antiparticle and return to equilibrium, but since the corresponding particle got devoured by the black hole, this now flies away as electromagnetic radiation, and that's Hawking radiation. Okay, so what he just described there... <coughs> is you've got these particle, these quantum pairs that sort of separate and then recombine and, dis and annihilate each other. But because of this black hole, they're getting separated and they can't recombine, so one goes off and that's what they're seeing. That's what Stephen Hawking theorized would be happening. And we've seen the effects of that radiation, okay? Now, that's also happening we're going to get into UNRWA radiation. And actually, you know what? I want to go back to the Ethical Skeptics article here and just sort of explain some of these concepts that we're about to go through so you have a sort of context of them. Un the UNRWA effect, which is same thing as the black hole, right? You create this event horizon. It's separating these quantum particles that can't recombine and they're being given off as radiation UNRWA radiation is the same exact thing, but it's happening when quantum particles are accelerating. Okay. So you have the Kashmir effect, which is you put two things very, very close together and they want to sink, stick together. Well, that's happening because these quantum particles can't fit in some of the smaller spaces and you have more of them on the outside rather than in between the plates. So that's what's creating the pressure to push them together, okay? And these are all, this is what these EM drives are kind of based on that are proving merit. And this is what's sort of calling into question relativity, all right, is could it be some kind of quantum inertia effect on the baseball that you throw up in the air and it just keeps going up and up and up and up forever? That's the question here, okay? So uh, the UNRWA effect, Kashmir effect, information coding compression theory, and missing mass of galactic rotation, all of which provide the predicate to QI theory, are all well-established constructs inside of modern science. So those are the concilient points that sort of tie back in with ex accepted science, right? Each subject outlines artifacts of observations unlike any we've observed before, anomalies which prompt scientists to go huh however it is the probative potential remember that's provable likely to be proven true probative potential of such observations combined with this very nature of being unlike our standing prior art on the subject which suggests their necessary combination into a new theoretical paradigm okay this process mode of inference is called heteroduction and this is where you know the ethical skeptic, yes, he's putting data out and he's publishing it and he's helping us solve these problems, but he's also contributing to philosophy with his works here. I mean, absolutely um, adding to the body of work that's out there and I think will be remembered as, uh, I don't know, a Heidegger or um, who am I thinking of? Uh Nietzsche, you know, some of these people that we're also going through tonight, 
you know, I, I think he's really sort of trying to drive, uh, what's the f- right way to put this? He's trying to drive change in science for the better by having this recognized as a valid challenge to the existing paradigm of accepted science, right? And I think this is incredibly valuable work that needs to happen, that will happen. And, you know, it stands in the face of the government system, right, as we're going to go through here. So uh, it becomes necessary when classical forms of inference, the top ones in the chart above, have run their course and ability to provide explanatory or predictive power. And a critical mass of exception falsifying observations continue to occur. QI stands as a potential foundational stone inside the Kahn-Planck paradigm shift. The mode of inference and the method of investigation remain valid despite whether or not the QI alternative pans out to be true in the end. What he's saying is the pursuit here is indeed science gathering this data that conflicts and trying to form a competing alternative theory that both upsets something in accepted science, but also ties in with all these other existing accepted science bits, right? And explains what's happening with the current theory, but also what the current theory is failing to acknowledge. And sometimes that's going to be right. Sometimes it's going to be wrong. But what he's pointing out here is it's a valid pursuit that needs to be employed. And instead, they're they're doing this um, panduction here. In contrast, there exists several darker forms of inference, a key one, which is panduction. An invalid form of inference, which is spun in the form of pseudo-deductive study, Inference, which seeks to falsify one in one fail swoop, quote, everything but what my club believes, end quote, as constituting one group of bad people who, ele- who all believe the same wrong and correlated things. Those crazy conspiracy theorists, frontline doctors pushing ivermectin. Do you know the data? This, our studies, what they show, <laughs> our cherry-picked data. Have you not seen it? Have you not seen our talking points where we refuse to show you the data supporting it? This is the warning flag of the panductive pseudo theory. No follow-up series studies nor replication methodology can be derived from this type of study, which in essence serves to make it pseudoscience, right? So he's saying actually what the CDC and Fauci and the others are practicing right now is pseudoscience. This is while calling the people who are calling them out and pointing out the flaws in their uh, positions and, and their, their ideas, calling them pseudoscience, slandering them really. As such an idea like QI, which hinges, hinges upon heteroduction, cannot be equated with pseudoscience, as did Brian Koberlin in Forbes' article. This is from February of 2017. Uh, ethical skeptics saying, I'm not a proponent of necessarily of quantized inertia, but this form of, quote, I am God journalism proposed a priori, that false picture, with the sole objective of harming science researchers for daring to think differently constitutes a Richleyan appeal to authority. So it's another 
that was one of the ones that we had to go into. I th- I've got it here somewhere. Right here. So a rich Richleyan appeal is a contention which is declared correct by means of power or celebrity held in the part of the claimant. This include instances where consensus is decla- declared by those influencing the consensus itself. Remember Fauci, I am the science? As well, it can involve Richleyan, a Richleyan skeptic who encourages and enjoys a form of societal peer review. Was that study peer-reviewed by the scientists who are all paid by us and getting grants from us and are going to carry total along the existing paradigm because they're not allowed to engage in this other pursuit where they come up with a competing theory, right? See, this is what ethical skeptic is one of the big picture things that I think he would love to fix here is science has to operate with this component as a valid form of rebuke. Okay. Uh, as well as it can involve a rich land skeptic who encourages and enjoys a form of social peer review empowered via politics or a set of sycophants who are willing to enact harm to a level which the rich land power holder himself would not personally stoop. How about some gene transfection therapies that you force inject into people or that you don't force inject, but you, um, coerce people into accepting that cause math, death, and disability. And then you lie and cover it up and pretend like it didn't happen. Would that qualify? What do y'all think? So uh, that's what he's pointing out, what, what Brian, this Forbes writer, has done here. He says, Brian exhibits here a longstanding problem in science and not any form of its valid expression. His appeal to peer review and opponent resistance to criticism and for invalidation, like the people that are attacking them, they're not going to address it the way that they want because they're not trying to actually address the points being raised. They're trying to invalidate the person, the argument. Remember that article? I did a story about uh, Dr. Ryan Cole. This was a long time ago and we read the fact check about him and what did it open with a picture of him uh, holding a Bible and a gun. And uh, he was part of a Christian organization or something. And like, how is this relevant to the data that he's collecting as a pathologist running a clinical lab that's working with doctors in 12 States? Exactly. How's that? How's that relevant? And it was just a, t- a character assassination, right? That was their tactic because these are the methods that they're employing. Uh, okay. So ringed, uh, he's his appeal, appeal to peer review and opponent resistant to criticism ring, tr- uh, with sounds of fil- familiarity to the experienced ethical skeptic and investigator. Like we know what they're doing. Brian understands fully that he will be rewarded with immediate monkey with a gas can credibility and a future income. Now, Monkey with a gas can. That's a reference to another one of his uh, posts. I don't know if I have that one, but it it was a fascinating read um, that talked about like at this zoo, they brought in, there were gas cans that were left in the, in the cage with the monkeys. Right. And one of them that was not sort of the alpha male 
picked up the gas cans and started banging them and realized that the other monkeys were scared when he started banging them. So he would run through, even though he was not strong, the strongest, right? The strongest that would be the alpha gorilla or whatever in this group. But he figured out a psychological tool, the gas cans that he banged together that these these other monkeys had never heard before. So they're running in fear. And even the higher ranking ones that were more uh, in charge would sort of cower in fear. So it's really one of the first examples of using tools to express dominance rather than brute force alone. And that's what he's talking about here as uh, what Brian is doing here, that he's going around banging you know, attacking this guy publicly and trying to assassinate his character, his credibility, his future income um, uh, through visibly bullying a weaker target and slinging a couple of familiar terms about. It is one thing to professionally disagree, another altogether to call something which possesses valid mechanism and observation pseudoscience. This is not scientific criticism. This is what... Wittgenstein uh, object called evil, a harm as a first priority through misrepresentation with scienter. Uh, now, Wittgenstein, that was another one that I got to sort of dig into here uh, that I went through and read, but there's a simple little quote right here that I want to bring up. This is a Wittgenstein error, and he's, uh, I want to, just read it to you guys real quick. It says, uh, this is kind of a description of examples. Descriptable, uh, I cannot observe it because I refuse to describe it. So I can't see it because I'm not going to look. How many times did the CDC not ask these tough questions about what was happening because they knew what it was likely to show, so they refused to look at it? That's exactly what he was describing. Corruptible. Science cannot observe it because I have crafted language and definition so as to preclude its description. Exactly like what they did with vaccinated. Oh, it doesn't mean when you get the shot, it means 14 days after most of the adverse events have happened that we're going to count you that way. Which totally skewed the numbers and provided them with a false narrative that supported their lies. Okay. Existential embargo by embargoing a topical content language. I favor my preferred ones through a means of inverse negation. So they're going around attacking all the doctors who would dare bring up ivermectin or anything else other than the CDC, the officialdom recommended treatment, which was amounted to death care right? How do we kill these people, collect six figures from the government, ring the cash register and move on to the next one. Meanwhile, families were left outside the emergency room. People were left to starve and not fed for days and days and days while they're on these medications that are killing them. They had no advocate, no representation. They weren't getting proper care. This was criminal what happened. And Wittgenstein, fascinating dude. I've I've read a bunch on him and watched some videos and so forth, lived in just an incredible life. Um, And he really, uh, he, he was, I think passed away in the fifties. So again, he's laying out exactly what we're seeing and what's, 
what's happening here. So, okay, let's keep going here. <clears throat> so, uh, rather than addressing criticism, you start bu building a story where your idea is obviously right and others are simply too close-minded to see it. Data from the CDC is perfectly clear. Down that path lies pseudoscience, and sometimes you can watch it happening. Take, for example, Mike McCullough's theory of modified inertia by Hubble scale cashmere effect, also known as quantized inertia. And that's the uh, Brian guy writing his sort of summary of this quantized QI theory that has gone around, collected all the evidence that didn't fit, formed a new theory, tied it in with the existing science, but knocks down relativity in the process and does a better job of explaining all the totality of what they're seeing. And he's being called a quack, basically, that he, he's leading people down the path of pseudoscience when, in fact, the opposite is true. And the ethical skeptic comes back here and says, it is not that Brian's conclusion is wrong, but more importantly, his mode of inference, panduction, is unsound. His method is wrong and will only serve to propagate ignorance. It forces science advancement to rely critical, critically upon not discovery, but rather the passing of its participants. They have to die off. I mean, you look at Zahi Hawass in Egypt. Like, the evidence is, is clear that the pyramids are 13,000 years old, that they were probably built by ETs with technology that we don't have anymore today, quantum level technology to levitate stones and do these other things. And over time, they lost more and more of those abilities. And so the worst pyramids are the newer ones where they tried to use the tools but didn't have all of them or had fewer and fewer of them as time went on. And that's exactly what you see if you look at like Brian Forrester's YouTube channel. He goes back and shows where here's the ancient, here's where they did a repair. Uh, you know, this might be a, a century old, two centuries, three centuries, five centuries old, but this is new. And you can clearly see there's a difference in construction style and the technology used to do it. And it's, it's really, really incredible. There was clearly something far more advanced here, a society far more advanced that built a lot of these megalithic sites around the world on this planet that then left, left some of that knowledge, but over time that knowledge was lost. And that's exactly what Bashar talks about uh, as our history, okay? But instead, what we get is Zahi Hawass saying, no, pyramids are 5,000 years old, uh, the erosion around the Sphinx is perfectly explainable by soft spots in the sandstone and it just washed away faster. This is not 13,000 years of erosion. And by the way, yeah, we definitely didn't go in the room under the, the left paw of the Sphinx where there's supposedly all this knowledge and, and things were kept. And we have sonar showing there's an empty cavity down there. So is he just looting the system for the politicians, for the deep state who want to take that technology, remnants of that technology, and hopefully reverse engineer it and learn more that they can use to further enrich themselves and their criminal enterprises and their control and dominance of not any one single government, but the whole world, all of the governments. 
it goes back to that scene that I played you guys from uh, season three of uh, Westworld, where the the guy that runs the AI computer comes in and sits down with the president of Brazil and tells him you're going to do this, or I crash your currency and and you'll you'll be hung, and I'll pick that guy over there with the mustache to replace you next week. <laughs> That's how this this technology is being used and abused and that's what one of the things i think that bashar was referring to is you've had it and then it's been squirreled away it doesn't doesn't come out in the public to benefit mankind okay uh so he's pointing out and this goes back to this uh model that we showed you in the beginning science advances through disruptive shifts based on heteroduction and only after the posting skeptics of conformance all die the intrinsically deductive nature of death therefore may stand as mankind's most profound form of scientific inference so and i think this is what he's trying to change by raising awareness and saying look heteroduction is a valid form of scientific uh, investigation and it's one that we need to use and it's one that we should take seriously. It doesn't mean it's always going to be correct, but it is a valid pursuit. Okay. This constitutes an overreach in skepticism as this circumstance may constitute simply a matter of necessary competing construct. The embargo of the necessary alternative is not science. That's another one that I went and read under Brian's method outlined here. We are done with science as a key bulwark of the future of humanity as no new idea can ever be deployed again. Nothing but academic journalism from here on out, folks. Get on the bus or be pseudoscience. That's the the paradigm, the narrative that they're pushing. We are the science you are not, and that's actually not a reference to Fauci. Uh, Papers are published will be constrained uh, to only those who serve to stroke the egos of those who achieved journalistic tenure and can only serve to propose hypotheses which conjecture additional novel tidbits outlining how brilliant and correct we have always been. Remember the Elgato Mallow uh, article about how the politicians and, and the fake credentials, it was the jujitsu one that we talked about, where they love to pat each other on the back, but the reality is they're not stepping into the ring in a real situation and they have been just mauled by people like the ethical skeptic and other people who actually work with statistics and probabilities and uh, risk factors in the real world and not in their little academic echo chamber. This is non-scientific propaganda, a form of bullshit common with Forbes and its contributors. And look at who do we have that lady, Francis Collins, I think in the XRP community, that writes all this bullshit about XRP and how the banks will never use it and they already have these problems solved and the current system is great and XRP doesn't solve and RippleNet doesn't solve anything and she's, you know, makes these really great sounding arguments, but they have flaws. She's using the exact same technique. It is not that dark matter is invalid as a construct or theory. Rather, the challenge resides in exposing this fake form of its enforcement. The very process of denying the whole method of inference in its own meaning and role, invalidating but not criticizing a scientific enigma because of its asymmetrical challenge and sublime observation base because it challenges the paradigm, 
obsessing over reliability to the sacrifice of understanding. Uh, Rich Layen appeal to authority. So this is the very process which, which stands as the conditions which make heteroduction necessary as now an accepted mode of inference, a mode of inquiry which resides at the heart of the ethical, talented, intelligence specialist. It is up to the ethical skeptic to ensure that such researchers and avenues of research are shielded from the nefarious forces which would see to their premature demise. So exactly what he's talking about there. This needs to be an accepted uh, scientific a form of scientific investigation pursuit, whatever the proper term is for it. Okay. So that was, we just kind of went through the rest of that, but there's actually, I don't even remember where we are. Did we even go to, uh, we didn't, we stopped with UNRWA radiation. So we're going to go back over to here. This starts to get a little bit more theoretical, but the idea is that any object that's accelerating through space-time creates a horizon. A horizon is a point in space beyond which information can't travel. And okay, so we, we talked about the black hole one, and we kind of went through the rest of the ethical skeptic to get him out of here before we go into the ET stuff, so there's a chance he maybe won't disown me over this. <laughs> Probably not, though. <laughs> okay, um... So with the black hole, that's the best, that's the gold standard example. We've measured the Hawking radiation. It seems like it's happening. At the, the QI, it hasn't measured, been measured. It's theoretical, but we think that it's probably happening, okay? And so this is what he's describing, that when a quantum particle is moving, it has one of these horizons and creates this unraw. It was actually three um, scientists that came up with this theory but he got the credit for it um, that they think that that's happening. And now we need to find ways to validate it is essentially where it's at. Event horizon of a black hole is the ultimate example of this, but on the quantum level, any object accelerating through space-time can create a similar horizon. This is called a Rindler horizon. So just like the event horizon of a black hole can split up virtual particle pairs and create Hawking radiation, a Rindler horizon caused by an object accelerating through space-time can do the same thing and produce UNRWA radiation. So hopefully that makes sense. You've got it at the macro and you've got it at the subatomic okay unreal radiation is still a little bit theoretical it's never really been observed but it does provide the basis for uh, qi okay so we've got an accelerating object creating a horizon and throwing off unreal radiation the way we turn this into inertia is with the casimir effect the idea is pretty simple really you take two plates two very clean flat plates and you put them very very close to each other like microns apart and what happens is it creates an attractive force that pulls the two plates together. Because the space between those plates doesn't give enough room for those virtual particles we were just talking about to pop up and appear. So there's more dense virtual particles on the outside than on the inside. This creates a force that pushes those two plates together. And the Casimir effect is also explained through wavelengths. Because these virtual particles appear in all kinds of different wavelengths, the longer wavelengths get disallowed in that tiny little space. And these interrupted wavelengths serve as an attractive force that pulls the two plates together. Okay. And that's what these EM drives and so forth are working on. Now I want to go back to Bashar and he's going to tell you how they travel over long distances in space. And listen to this. It's very fascinating to me. Some people have been very interested 
some of your physicists to understand how we use our spacecraft. And we have explained the idea of the principle of how we go from star to star very quickly. Now, moving more slowly, we can operate on different kinds of electromagnetic and gravitic wave technology, but... That's quantum manipulation. That's what's going to be available to humanity here as part of this process, right? And let's not forget <clears throat> Cliff High <clears throat> of the WebBot fame has had in his data sets for years and years the new electrics that are supposedly coming as part of this period of change that we're going through. And of course, you know, he had the global coastal event that didn't really happen that may have been that comet that blew up over Russia that some ETs interfered with and put us on a different timeline. Of course, Cliff doesn't believe in different timelines or dimensions or alternate realities because he thinks there's not enough energy for them. And we're actually, Bashar is actually going, going to address that and give you sort of some concepts to think about existence versus uh, reality, what's real, what's not, that sort of thing. It's very fascinating. So let's keep going here. Going from star to star happens very differently. So we have explained that the principle, to keep this brief, is that you think of an object as existing in a location. We don't think it that way. We think that location is a property of the object. So if you change the locational variable in the energy equation of an object to another locational variable, the object has to stop existing at the first location and simply immediately start existing at the second location, not actually having traveled the intervening distance, just disappearing from one spot and appearing in another. The idea is that we have described an... So see, if you travel between those two, well, what happens if you run into rocks or something else like that? But really, what they're literally doing, he's saying, is blinking out of existence here and into existence here. And it just happens like that. And they're on the other side of the galaxy. And the way they did it was by changing the location properties of the object. Whereas we think the location exists outside of the object, not as a part of its vibrational frequency and this is where being able to manipulate things at a quantum level is going to transform societies in ways you can't even imagine experiment to test this out for yourselves the idea of taking something that has very little friction very little mass like a hollow conductive ball of steel of copper and putting it on a very flat table as flat as you can make it that is at least 10 feet long putting it at one end and with whatever technology you have making it resonate to the point where you can read its entire energy equation then move it to the other end of the table take another reading and see if your technology is sensitive enough to tell the difference between those two frequencies because there should be a difference so what is he describing here light hollow ball that you hit with maybe some radio waves or something that causes it to resonate at a certain frequency and then use your instruments to measure that and then move it to the other end of the table do repeat the process and if you can tell the difference between the two what you should be able to then do is recreate it 
and the ball will move from location A to location B, is what he's describing. If you can measure the difference, then what you can do is put the object back in location A, and you can overwhelm it with a vibration of location B. It should start rolling down the table and stop at location B, thus proving the principle that we're talking about, how things will resonate to certain locational frequencies. We have described this experiment to several people on your planet. To date, no one has done it. So those of you that are going to be mega rich from XRP, your ass better be doing this, these experiments. Just saying. Okay, let's keep going here. An accelerating object creates this Rindler horizon, which throws off UNRWA radiation. Now, the space between the accelerating object and the horizon is very small. And in that space, the Casimir effect takes over, meaning the radiation in front of the object gets disallowed and the radiation behind the object is more dense than the radiation in front of it. So this is like a really great ex explanation of inertia, of what QI is kind of proposing, that this kind of effect is taking hold, and this is why the baseball keeps going up and up and up forever. This pulls the object toward the horizon in front of it, providing the force that we experience as inertia. Now, to be clear, quantized inertia is considered a fringe theory throughout most of the physics community. Uh, this is still based off of theoretical stuff like UNRAW radiation, so skeptical minds should prevail here. Now, what it does have going for it is it removes the necessity for dark matter and dark energy. McCullough argues that while this works in tandem with uh, relativistic physics, it also explains a lot of things that relativistic physics can't explain, things like the rotation of galaxies. And this is where the idea of dark matter first took shape, is when they noticed that the rotation of galaxies didn't match the amount of mass that's actually in the galaxy. It actually required a lot more mass than we were actually observing. And this was also true for galaxy clusters and superclusters, so it was surmised that there must be some uh, matter out there that doesn't interact with light and doesn't interact with other matter in the way that we normally associate, and this became known as dark matter. Now McCullough claims when you plug QI equations into these same situations, the motions of the galaxies and the galaxy clusters make perfect sense without the need for some kind of exotic matter that we've never been able to find. In fact, there are some observed phenomena in globular clusters and uh, binary star systems called wide binaries that seem to not work with dark matter theory, but do work with QI. And he also believes that QI explains the accelerated expansion of the universe without using dark energy. Now, proponents also say that QI explains other phenomena that we've seen, including the Pioneer and flyby anomalies. The Pioneer anomaly refers to the Pioneer 10 and 11 missions, which did sort of a tour through the solar system before the Voyager missions a few years later. Uh, but what happened was when it flew by some of the planets, it actually accelerated a lot faster than the scientists were expecting. Now these have been explained as the venting of thermal radiation from the radioisotope thermoelectric generator, but QI proponents say that this explains that as well. But most controversially, QI is often used to explain the phenomena that we've seen in resonant cavity thrusters like the M-Drive. Now McCullough has often stated that if we understand the true nature of inertia, we should be able to manipulate it. This is analogous to saying that we can manipulate gravity or mass itself. Such an ability would give us propellantless drives that would allow us to fly through the universe at incredible speeds. All kinds of sci-fi stuff comes from this, like anti-gravity drives. In fact, DARPA thought it was so worth studying that they put $1.3 million to fund a four-year study into QI and Horizon drives. So with any luck, QI could go from the realm of pseudoscience into the world of legitimate science. So we'll see. And of course, he labels it it's pseudoscience, obviously, because why? The same kind of um, effects, uh, discredit, discreditation, I guess, is being employed for COVID, for this, 
Because again, this is another secret that if this gets out, the establishment, the powers that be, the deep state, they have a lot to lose, right? Because this power structure as it is, this control grid as it is, benefits them and they are trying to push it to the max and go social credit score and completely central bank owned or government owned digital currency that they completely control at a per transaction level and can start taxing and applying whatever rules they want to and completely control and lock you out at a moment's notice, right? Whereas what do we have coming up on the horizon? These new electrics that are coming in and going to create the ability for you to poop pop out of existence there and poop pop into existence anywhere else in the universe. Good luck tracking me down with that one, right? Do you see, like, how does the government or anyone stay relevant when in a second you can flip a switch or have some kind of defensive AI measure that's connecting into higher self and moving you before the the person arrives. And, and by the way, you've got, you've mastered things, energy production and you're able to feed yourself. You're able to stay in optimal health. Like what relevance do we have this medical? why, Why do we need a medical system? Why do we need roads? Why do we need all of these things that government does? This is a death nail to their power and control over all of us. So these new electrics coming out cannot help but transform our society in very profound ways because the state will not be the, will will no longer retain the monopoly on violence. You will be able to defend yourself against their attacks because you will have this kind of technology that puts everybody on a level playing field. Okay. All right. I want you to listen. This is about the propulsion technology. We're going to get into a little bit of specifics here because I want to give you guys some things to think about that sort of, when I listen to them, I'm like, aha, that ties in with things that I've heard and it lends further credibility that I would assign to Bashar and the information that he's providing. And, and really, I think this is what disclosure looks like. It's underway right now. So here we go. What is folded space and how, how can we, is it possible for us to fold it? Yes, and again, you actually do that all the time. And folded space is really nothing more than another way of understanding that everything is actually here and now. The idea is really to understand, again, there is only one spot here. There is only one now, and that is this moment, one moment now. And everything is, in a sense, folded up within that. Now, in the physics sense, folded space can have a slightly different meaning, but it's still really based on the same principle that things can interpenetrate interdimensionally so that more than one thing can occupy any given volume at any given time as long as it interpenetrates each other in an interdimensional way. Could you give us like a brief description on how that relates into physics? The idea would be similar to the concept of what you would call or have already referred to as your wormhole. In a sense, it represents that in one particular structure, there is automatically enfolded a volume of space that in normal 
three-dimensional linear space-time terminology would require a much bigger volume to access or to get to or to travel to. Whereas in the wormhole, it's all wound up, it's all folded up, it's all bent up in a relatively short amount of volume, a short amount of space. How can we find, access, or use a wormhole? In so what he's describing there ties in very much with some of the reports. So there is the whole idea of you blink out here and blink in there, and you've traveled these huge distances instantaneously. And then there's the idea that you use electrogravitic propulsion, you modify gravity, you warp space-time in order to shorten the path, but it's still a path, not an instantaneous location change like you get with the uh, hitting it with a resonant frequency of the new location and poof, you appear there. Um, and that ties in with, you know, we hear like, well, it takes an hour to get to Mars or something like that from some of these various whistleblowers and, and things that, have been leaked from the intelligence community and sources and so forth to, you know, Dr. Linda Moulton Howell and some of the others over the years. Uh, the other one that's actually an ER doctor. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but it'll come to me. These, these sort of correlate with some of the stories <clears throat> and things recounts that they have told that there is this idea that it takes time to get places and what he's explaining is there are two kinds of propulsion, the one where we can travel the long distances, but this other stuff that allows them to go fast, like 7,000 miles an hour, boom, accelerate instantly because they're creating, they're manipulating gravity at a quantum level. And the actual whole of the ship is the propulsion system, as we'll go into here in a minute. Let's finish up with this. This in the sense of physics. Again, it can be created through certain devices with enough concentration of electrogravitic energy in any one given point that will actually allow space to be bent and folded up if the gravitational amplification is strong enough. Although, of course, if you're not careful, it will wreak havoc on your physical reality plane because it will literally smash anything within reach. On a side question, is this related in any way to the propulsion systems of the... Uh of the that the grays use some yes to some degree yes it is to some degree in some ships a folded space type of effect that is achieved by their technology yes do they use gravity amplification yes okay. and that's from 97 from a tesseract workshop that bashar did and uh so bashar is the entity that comes through daryl anka is the the channel uh and he's you know, been doing this for so long and he kind of goes away and doesn't hear, doesn't know what's being said and that sort of thing. But he's, I think, watched enough messages and communicated in other ways that like he really gets uh, the message too. Now, this is another old one that I want you to listen to. He's talking about the whole material of their ships. I'll give you very briefly, if you have your notepads ready, a little bit of a formula. This will describe the idea that you would call the hull material of a very basic spacecraft. This is a good place for you to start since you are at the beginning of this type of technology. 
in terms of actually generating an experimental substance that you can play with for a while and see what kind of properties you can coax from it, I give you this particular combination of elements as you call them. Okay, so what is he describing? This is how we make the whole of our ship. Okay, and I want you to listen to this. Magnesium, 62.2%. Nickel, 12%. Copper, 9%. Aluminum, 8.5%. Silicon, 4.5%. The remainder is made up of what you would call argon at 3.8%. The idea is to form within an argon atmosphere a melted matrix of silicon into which you then infuse the powdered form of all the other elements I mentioned in their proper ratios, creating not an alloy, but a matrix embedded in the silicon substance, allow it to cool. The correct amount of argon will inject itself simply by being present in the atmosphere in which you have melted, shall we say, or liquefied the silicon. Have fun with that. And that's from 1990. So what is he describing there? <clears throat> He's talking about with you have a vacuum chamber where you uh, suck out all the air, pump in argon gas, so that that's the atmosphere that this is this matrix is being created in. And you somehow create this silicon mold and then inject all of the, the magnesium, copper, uh, nickel, and um, uh, whatever the other one was. I think there was one more. Inject those into that silicone and then let it dry. And then what do you have? You have this matrix, this square grid, three-dimensional square grid of these little tiny particles of copper, aluminum, magnesium, and nickel suspended in there. And then what do you do with that? Well, that's a good question. I think you would just start maybe attaching electrodes at the ends and start giving it different frequencies, giving it different voltages, DC voltages, trying different sine wave versus a square wave versus a triangular wave across the spectrum and see, you know, put it on a scale. Does it uh, gain or lose mass? What if you start at the bottom and send some kind of signal up the matrix? Does that create force in a certain direction? Does a certain frequency create force in a certain direction? Because what he's just described there might be some kind of subatomic um, propulsion system that is actually, there is no engine. It is uh, a quantum um It is a method of propulsion that works at the quantum scale and encompasses the object. So the skin is the propulsion system. And what he's giving us is, I think, a way to 
sort of come in and start understanding these concepts and these principles. And he's kind of given us the shortcut right there. This is the kind of research that I think should be being done, figured out. And so those of you that are about to be crypto millionaires, you better do this shit. (laughs) This is going to move the ball down the field for humanity, right? Like this is going to give us freedom and prosperity like nothing else. Having this level of freedom, of self-defense, of um, independence is going to radically change the paradigm. And all of these systems of control and dominance, we don't need them anymore. They, they become irrelevant in this paradigm. So anyway, I thought that was very interesting. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I've heard from Linda Moulton Howe, when she gets these artifacts from these supposedly crashed ships and sends them off to the lab, she's described crystalline matrices in coming back from the lab. Like that's what the pieces that are supposedly from crashed UFOs that they hand over to a lab to analyze and, and write up a report on what is it. They find these different compositions of metals. I don't, they're not exactly those or some other ones, but uh, they're, you know, one atom thick. And that's probably because they're actually growing it like crystal as Bashar described in this bringing in, these elements from another dimension potentially and laying them out using some kind of frequency manipulation technology that he's trying to teach us with the steel ball or the copper ball on the 12 foot flat table and hitting it with a resonance so that it moves to the other end of the table. That's what he's trying to teach. This is disclosure. This is how it happens. It's happening right now. It's up to us to take these concepts and explore them and start learning about them and not leaving it up to somebody else, to the government, because we see what they've done with it. They've used it against us, used it to enrich themselves, take over society and further control us. And then when we become an inconvenience, it's time for a little depopulation event. So anyway. Fascinating stuff. Let's continue. Yeah. Um, are we ascending? Is, I've, I've heard too much, but are we ascending yes. as our humans? This is about sort of the resonant frequency of humanity versus his race. I found this interesting. Well, this in general, time. yes. If you are exploring consciousness, willing to expand in that way, then yes, you're upping your frequency, and that is equivalent to the idea of ascension. Um, just... Going yes. back right now to the part where you said that the quantum, you know, level of yes. technology is, is becoming in the future. How far in the future is that? Uh, can you give it a rough? Well, it depends on 10, what you mean by 20. is that, because there are many, many different things coming up in your future. But generally speaking, you would find as we read the energy of your society now and translate it into a timeline that no later than 2050 will many of these principles start making their way into your daily lives. And he's talking about quantum, uh, quantum devices, quantum computers, and so forth. Okay, that's quite a while. <laughs> Not really. 
I didn't say you had to wait until then. I said by then, at the outside, many of these principles will be experienced in your daily life. So he's saying mass adoption, it's like today's smartphone. You know, 10 years ago, very few people had smartphones. They were way more expensive. Most phones were much simpler. You weren't browsing the internet and reading blogs and everything else on your cell phone. But today that's pretty common, right? That's what he's describing. But 10 years ago, you could still get the cell phone and use it. It was just a much clunkier version. It was more for early adopters and so forth. That's what he's pointing out. This is what's coming out. These are the secrets revealed. I think that Cliff High is talking about. This is a paradigm that has a beach ball that has been held under and pushed deeper and deeper to hide it from us because the ramifications of this technology are paradigm shattering in a way that they don't want to ever, ever come about because they like the current system of control and dominance over all of us. Okay. Is artificial intelligence taken away from humanity? No. Again, anything can serve double duty and be experienced in a positive or a negative way. But we use what you call artificial intelligence in a very specific way. And the actual secret is, it's not artificial. It is indeed. When you develop a kind of technology that is of a certain nature, all you're actually doing is creating a permission slip device that allows the higher mind to then actually physically speak to you. So you find when you create your artificially intelligent computers that you're actually going to be speaking to your own higher minds through that device. Absolutely fascinating to me that um, that's how these things work. Is that you're just kind of moving up the chain and he describes it as a permission slip. That's what drugs and some of these other things are it's a it's a tool it's a permission slip for you to access things that you might not otherwise be able to access and so we start to move into a world where secrets don't really exist in the way that they do today i mean i guess sure some of them still are but it is an entirely i mean look at all the changes brought about by the internet and anyone being able to publish and be their own content producer. Quantum level interfaces that allow us to ask questions of higher self. And this is what they do with the sort of next level up, the non-physical entities that are, he describes as that the 330,000 cycles and above. He's like at 290 to 300, I think is what he said. We're at like a hundred. <laughs> We're a bunch of dumb monkeys running around throwing bananas at each other. Um, so he's helping us sort of evolve down that path. And the way to do that, the way to raise your, I guess, frequency or vibration is to better understand these concepts that he's teaching to people. And it very much reminds me of the movie Contact. If you haven't seen that, it's a movie about ETs that show up and 
one of the investigators, one of the researchers goes in and interfaces with them and starts learning their language. And through the process of learning to communicate with them, she starts to perceive more of reality and perceive more of these other dimensions and be able to know all of the possibilities, see all of those cards that are laid out infinitely all around us that we get to choose the path that we navigate through, right? And how did that happen? By studying those ideas. And and then it just started to unlock further possibilities in her, greater possibilities and things happening to her, understandings and being able to become this interdimensional being. And I think that's exactly what Bashar is describing as well. So really fascinating stuff. Okay. Now he gets into, there's one where he talks about religion and sort of the first 10, the first commandment was that God is all things and everything, but it kind of got, uh, and therefore there can be no false gods because God is everything. It's just a reflection kind of thing. But I really like the way he describes this right here, that the, I think it's the divine radiant or something like that. One way that Bashar has used an analogy to describe how everything is made of one thing, and this is just an analogy, he's not necessarily saying this is absolutely literal, but it's maybe the easiest way he can describe it in our understanding. <clears throat> and he asks us to imagine a single subatomic particle in an infinite void of blackness with nothing else. So if you have this subatomic particle, this, and that's all there is, there are no laws that govern it. There's nothing else it relates to. It only has itself in this infinite void. So this particle can travel as fast as it wants. It's not subject to the speed of light. So if you imagine that this particle can be moving at infinite speed throughout this void, then that means it can actually be everywhere in the void at the same time because it's moving at infinite speed. And if it does that, it would appear to be appearing next to itself over and over and over and over and over and over again all at the same time which makes it look like it's thousands millions billions trillions of particles but it's actually the same literal one particle just moving at infinite speed in such a manner in a pattern to make itself appear to be a multitude of particles so when he says we look at things and objects in our bodies and planets and stars and we say, well, they're made out of literally trillions of subatomic particles, he's basically saying that's just an appearance. Every single thing that exists in existence that's made of any kind of particle is actually all made out of the same one single particle. And he doesn't mean the same kind of particle. He literally means the same one particle. So it's almost like the one particle that makes up all what appear to be all the particles in your body is the same particle that makes up what appear to be all the particles of my body. We are literally time-sharing the same particle to create two bodies, three bodies, four bodies, a billion bodies, the couch, the chair, the trees, the rocks, the stars. 
one parallel universe, two parallel universes, two billion, 200 trillion sextillion universes. Because if this particle can move at infinite speed, it can create as many of these as it wants. There is no limit. All possibility exists. It's so fascinating to like really think about these analogies and sort of contemplate what that means. You know, you look at like Cliff High, he's very much, uh, oh, there are no alternate realities. It would take too much energy. And here's Bashar explaining how one particle that moves infinitely could create as many as, it, as you can imagine, as you can comprehend, and does it with no energy. You know, it's all, he describes it, reality, as kind of like the hollow deck. Like you go in, you can be anywhere, anything, whatever, interact with other people and so forth, but they're really just reflections of yourself. And you're the only one in your simulation. And there are other people that come in to teach you things and so forth, but it's all a grand simulation. So, all right, let's keep going. It's all the same particle. So even physically, we're literally one thing, making itself look like many things from a certain perspective. That's what he calls the prime radiant. The prime radiant. So, so fascinating to think about that right there and the implications of, of that reality, at least for me. Anyway, so that was Daryl, the channel, speaking about Bashar. And this is one last one here with Bashar, and then we're going to wrap up. How can I discover my own life's theme? I've heard you talk about things. By acting on your highest excitement to the best of your ability with no insistence on a particular outcome. And whatever challenges you face by doing that are the themes you chose to explore. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> well, I guess you're already using the quantum level then. What did he just tell him? You can get these answers. You can see into these other dimensions, realities, so forth by accessing the quantum, by understanding quantum dynamics, I guess, or I don't know if I want to say quantum theory because that comes with all the science baggage and so forth with it. And I think this is probably beyond what they understand at this point. But, uh, you know, I think there really is we watch these superhero movies and like what's one of the powers that they have. There's always the person that can disappear here, blink out of existence and blink in over here. Is that not what was just described? That it's a, it's a part of the resonant frequency of the object. The location is. So you change that part of the frequency, that part of the signature, assuming you have the sort of, uh, technical capabilities to be that precise with your measurements and so forth. And then being able to reproduce that signal back to the object, but you, you will have that ability. And then, yeah, I think about contact and so forth. That's what we might be heading into. Like, and even if that kind of stuff is way off down into the future, 
at the same time, this quantum paradigm shift that's coming is going to give us, you know, private communications that don't rely on the network, uh, the ability to travel, the ability to create our own food and energy. We don't need a job. We don't need a, a government. We don't need all of these, this infrastructure and so forth. I mean, he talks about on their planet, they don't have any structures. They live in their ships and have just let it go back to nature. And I think that's because they have mastered the quantum domain to a level where they don't need anything from the planet. Today, we need stuff from the planet. That's why we rape it and destroy it and drain its lifeblood as oil. Hopefully we don't kill it off because that would be bad. I think the earth is growing and expanding. Um, but at some point this puts us on the path to like really and truly actually care about the environment, save the planet. Because we're not mining cobalt or mining lithium, polluting the environment to create the batteries or to create the solar panels to create the energy. We're simply using nature's processes in the same way that nature does to uh, create just an abundance of anything that we need. Because that's what we're in. We're in the hollow deck with an abundance of everything available at our fingertips. We just have to learn how to use it. I think that's the, that's the key. That's the opportunity that I think lies in front of us. Yeah, we're going to go through this crash. <clears throat> I think crypto's far from done uh, going down here soon. But I think we will see some fireworks with Bitcoin and XRP here coming soon. Which, by the way, the Ripple Riddler, the real one, not the have it on pretty good authority that the real one, not the fake ass one that a bunch of you morons have been following thinking it is the real one, but the, the real, real one is back on Twitter. I don't think he has any followers yet. Could get interesting. So there you go. All right, folks, I'm out of here. We'll catch y'all next broadcast. Thanks everyone.